Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty, hosted by Jody Katz, founder and creative director of Base Beauty Creative Agency. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. This week's episode features Barry Beck. He's the co-founder and COO of Blue Mercury. Listen as he tells us how his entrepreneurial journey started as a young boy, and he was making way more in high school as an entrepreneur than most of his friends' parents. And if you missed it, last week's episode featured Maria Nurislamova. She's the CEO of Sunbird and Deck of Scarlet. Enjoy the shows. Oh, wait, one more thing before we start our show. I'm thrilled to announce that Where Brains Meet Beauty podcast is a media partner with the Beauty and Money Summit in New York City this September. I really think you should check out their website. There's so many compelling case studies of how this event brought together independent brands and finance to create incredible growth. Please check it out. If you're going to be there, let me know. I'd love to see you at the event. And now here's the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Where Brains Meet Beauty. I am sitting here with Barry Beck, co-founder and COO of Blue Mercury. Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to sit with you today. Um, You know, I think that when we first talked, I realized that you are very contemplative and very thoughtful about the history of building your business and beyond that. And I think our listeners are going to get a lot out of that today. But let's start with a really easy question. How will you spend your day today? Uh, We're going to spend a wonderful day with you. uh, And then I'm going to meet with a couple different young uh, emerging brands and see what they're up to and understand what their innovation runway is and whether they're a good fit for Blue Mercury. Uh, And then I'm going out for a show tonight to see Mean Girls with my wife. Oh, that's so fun. That's really cool. So it's a date night. It is. I'm excited. Well, we're going to get to life with your wife towards the end of our conversation because that's what everybody wants to hear about. So, um, but we'll we'll get there. So let's talk about um, growing up because you're really revealing with me on the phone about what it was like growing up. And um, you told me that you experienced a huge difference in wealth between your household and your cousin's household. Um, and I'm wondering what kind of imprint did this make on you, and, and what sort of drive did it pull in you? Jeez, I don't know that I... Did I tell you all that? My true story of my personal life. Yes. uh, Well, um, you know, my father died. My father's father died when my father was very young. My father was on a Boy Scout trip to to California, and uh, he was staying with his uncle, and... um, uh, phone, the phone rang, and my father answered the phone, and the voice on the other end of the phone said, Stuart, it's my dad, your father died today, and this is a very different time. It's a long time ago, and you have to come back to Philadelphia and take care of your family. And my dad was a young guy, 10 years old. He, he didn't know what to do, so he said he knew enough to get off the couch and turn off the television. So that's what he did. He waited for his uncle to come to come home, and his uncle said, yes, you're going to have to go home and take care of your family. My father went home, and he had two younger brothers and a mom. He took care of them. He was an incredible student. Uh, he was planning on going to MIT, uh, but instead he had to stay in Philadelphia and go to the local engineering school, which was a school named Drexel University, uh, where he met my mother. And my father stayed in Philadelphia and bagged groceries, which was really an incredible contrast to my mom, who was hailed from one of the wealthiest families in Philadelphia. My mother's father, my, uh, my mother's father uh, was the original manufacturer of Izod Lacoste, the crocodile brand. He partnered early on uh, with a, a tennis player known for his aggressive tennis style, a guy named uh, Rene Lacoste, the crocodile. And um, 
he had a wildly successful career in textiles, a really conglomeration of textile companies. Um, and um, he was really operating at the highest levels of business in Philadelphia, which at that time was the fourth largest city in America. Um, you know, they had looked at so many different businesses. I remember one day he came home and he said, we're looking at a car company, um, Sabario, Sabario, uh, maybe Subaru. And I, he said, but who needs another car company? Well, that was a big miss, I guess, for my family. Um, but, uh, you know, my mother and father met at Drexel. They ultimately were married. Uh, and when they got married, my grandfather said to my father, come work for the family business. And my father said, well, you know, I'd rather be poor than ever work for my father-in-law. And uh, so, you know, that's what happened. I mean, we, I lived a very lower middle class life my whole life, which was in a, in great contrast to my cousins, we would have something called cousins club. So my cousins, we would meet twice a year and I'd meet all the cousins. We had many different cousins. And, you know, one of my particular cousins who today I'm very friendly with, cousin Nancy, and I still see her, uh, she would come to Cousins Club. She was very adventurous. And she said, uh, where were you? What are you up to? She said, well, we just got home from Colorado and we were skiing in Telluride. And I just had never heard of that place and couldn't, under I'd never been on a plane before. So I didn't understand why anyone would go to Colorado and ski. I just didn't, <laughs> I, you know. Uh, you can go to the Poconos for that. Right. That was my, in my mind, all I could think about was, well, we could go to the Poconos, which was probably an expensive round trip, 30 or $50 and, or whatever that would cost. And, um, you know, I'd never done that either, but I knew in my mind that was something that was possible. And so, you know, we had an okay life in the sense that my grandfather always took care of us. My mom was upset about the neighborhood we were living in. It was a bad neighborhood. And my mom wanted me to be around people that in her mind were sort of, quote, going somewhere, close quote, whatever that meant. So my grandfather affected that for us. He picked us up and moved us, moved us to the worst street in the better school district. We were actually literally on the street. When you looked at our area code, like the phone bill, we used to get these phone bills from your home. It would actually say the other town, but we were in the the uh, the, the, the new town, um, and uh, you know, we, and went lived in lived in this area in a better school district, an area called the Main Line of Philadelphia. Um, but I always sort of looked at this thing. It wasn't ever about a financial aspect. It was always about a perceived independence mm -hmm. and autonomy that my cousins had. And I think that really affected me. You know, it's so interesting because it's actually your father who set this boundary of independence, right? By saying, no, I'm not going to be, you know, forced into the business I don't want to be in with family members, right? He, he really stood on his own two feet for extreme independence, but you perceived the cousins as having independence because they, they had money to go places, right? But you actually were experiencing independence in both realms. In a different way, yes. And so, you know, fast forward a few years, my, I'll never forget, my father was a very, you know, he grew up in a tough situation. And, you know, I love my father. He's still alive today. And he's always, he's, even to this day, you know, he said to me when I was a young kid, he said, you'll see, the older you get, the smarter I'll get. <laughs> and he was right, because to this very day, I still call him for business advice, life advice. Um, but he sat me down when I was at or about eight to 10 years old. And he said, you can be anything you want in the world. You can do anything you want, as long as you own it. And that's what he wanted for me. And I think that really stuck with me. It really clicked for me. And so, you know, I set out to start businesses and run businesses. Right. So you segued right into my next question. Thank you for doing my, my work for me. Um, 
you know, this idea of a parent saying to a child, this is what you should do, um, there's a real opportunity to rebel against that, right? But you embraced it. You know, why do you think you were that kid that would embrace that, that mandate versus rebel against it? You know, uh, it was really this sense of autonomy. I really wanted this independence, and it was this drive. And I, certainly I think about this a lot, about how you create entrepreneurship. You know, there's so much study around entrepreneurship and how to be, become an entrepreneur. And I think that a lot of that is what's inside you. You know, to be a disruptor, to go march to a different drum, because really this idea of innovation versus globalization. I mean, globalization is just taking what you do here and putting it somewhere else and creating this idea of, you know, so much talk about best practices. We're the best at what we, well, yeah, but that's not innovation. Innovation is, is splitting off and doing something completely different, you know, being very disruptive. And I'm not sure that it's easy to teach that. So for me, you know, I, I started very young. I, eight or 10 years old, and I, Started shoveling every snow for every home in my neighborhood, twenty dollars a driveway or something. And you know the difference between me and everyone else was I set contracts in place with my with with my customers, and they got a ten to twenty percent discount <laughs> if they were loyal to me, and they were loyal to me. Wait, how did you know this, how to do that? I just did it. I don't know. And maybe it was on a handshake. I, I just don't remember exactly how I put it together, but it was it was it was something that I did, and it really worked. And the funny thing is, I um. I took all the money, I made the coins and the, and the dollar bills, and I put them into uh, little pill bottles, and I lined them up in my room. And in some small way, they signified or signaled an independence to me. I mean, it was small money, nickels and dimes mm -hmm. kind of thing, but it really signified this independence for me. And I, in my mind, maybe I wasn't thinking about operating quickly and at scale, this idea that we think about today in business, but I was always looking for the next big thing, $20 a driveway. Then I said, well, wait, you know, I lived in this neighborhood. I was tangential to these wealthy families on the main line, and we were not one. Uh, but, and I always thought, what goods and services can I sell to them? So then I started washing their cars. So I went from $20 a driveway to $150 to detail a car. Went out there with my Q-tips. I mean, I was excellent at it. And I was, you know, in, in middle school. And then in junior high school, I started a company called American Landscaping. And I, in one summer, maybe late in junior high school, I, was making, I made $50,000 one summer. And then I started another company, which was really actually an incredible success story, which is a company called... Um, uh, American window washing and this idea of going out these large mansions on the main line and washing all their windows and I had this idea I would charge three dollars for some windows window panes and five dollars charged by the window pane five dollars for win another window pane depending on how high they were in the house you know the height and um you know, all of a sudden I was charging $400 a house, doing five houses a day, $2,000 a day. This is in high school? This is in high school. So this is an after-school job? Yeah, after school and weekends. Mm -hmm. uh, and I guess at one point I said to my parents, I'm getting close to making $100,000 a year. And my mom and dad said, this is a long time ago, he said, you're making more than a lot of the doctors and lawyers we know. And I guess at that point, you know, you said earlier, maybe I'm a serial entrepreneur. I don't know exactly if that's what I am, but I knew at that point, I was hooked. Right. So you, um, this idea of early on, at 10 years old, 12 years old, stacking the coins on your shelf in the in the pill containers. I mean, I'm almost imagining them lined up like trophies in someone else's bedroom. Right. Is that sort of what it felt for you, like the sense of pride, this reminder of what you can do and where you can go? Autonomy. 
it was this idea of autonomy. Of course, I didn't, you know, obviously understand at that time I couldn't pay for my kids' education in school with <laughs> pill bottles filled with nickels and dimes. But you know, this is what it what it really was for me. And I just was always looking, you know, it's another incredible entrepreneur, a guy, Mark Benioff. I just recently looked at his bio. And he started Salesforce.com. He's similar thing. You know, junior high school started a company. High school started a company. College started a company and sold it. And it was just always... It was in his blood, and this is what it was. It just some people have that spirit, desire uh, to disrupt and change industries, and so that's really what was always burning inside me. So what I'm hearing, which is so fascinating, because I'm an entrepreneur too, it, and um, I'm not hearing this idea of like I started a company and it failed, and then I started another company and it failed. I don't hear anything about failure. Um, I just hear about shift and pivot and move and grow. Um, did you ever think about like this isn't working or this is going to fail or you know feel self doubt in these moments? So, I would say I'm a hard scrabble entrepreneur. I've had a lot of failure in my life, I, you know, and I've had to face partners in failure, and I've had to have talks with my partners who began to lose faith in me. You know, we, you know, my first my first major company after college that I started, Tower Systems, and which became U.S. Maintenance, was sold to a public company. We almost went insolvent twice. Blue Mercury, by the way, which is this incredible success story owned by a Fortune Company, almost went insolvent twice. And you know, I try to remind my partners, it's never linear. Mm-hmm. You know, and you learn a lot of lessons along the way. It's not linear. You know, I learned that, you know, cash flow is the lifeblood of every company. And these are these lessons you learn along the way. Uh, and the honest truth is that it, a lot of times along the way, I felt like I was eating glass. It's not easy. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, I, in the most difficult moments, I found my strength. It's where... When everybody said it's over, our business is over, is when people looked at me and I found my strength and I was at my best. Um, and you know, I embraced those moments and fought through them. I mean, it, some people, you know, there's a book Sun Tzu and the Art of War. People say they apply that to business because business is war with money. And so, um, so the answer to your question is no, it wasn't linear, and no, it's not easy. Right. So um, why eating glass? What about that um, painting, that picture? Describe to me what that felt like. Like, you know, I, I have self-doubt, but I don't describe it that way. So give me a sense of what that okay. means Okay, let you. me give you an example. My first company, Tower Systems, which became U.S. Maintenance, one morning, I think it was a Thursday, I woke up. I was a very young entrepreneur. He was in my 20s. So, you know, I didn't really understand everything about business and cash flow, all these things. But I, you know, I went to my checkbook that morning and I saw that, um, you know, we had a payroll due. There had been people that I work with, my friends, that, that, you know, we'd go out for lunch together. And, you know, I convinced them to join my company and leave their other companies. And, you know, I knew enough to know when I looked at my checkbook that they, I owed more in payroll that day. Uh, that, that amount was double the amount that was in my checkbook. Okay. Except the problem was it fell on the first of the month. I had all my utilities bills due that day. Uh, I had my rent was due that day and a whole host of other expenses, electric, I mean, everything. I didn't know what to do. I called my brother who was in Philadelphia running the Philadelphia branch of the company. And I explained to him the problem. He goes, yeah, the sickness, the blue flu, whatever you want to call it. I, I can't get out of bed. I said, what do you mean? He goes, I'm in bed now. I can't get out from underneath the covers. I'm catatonic. 
and I laid out for him what I looked at in our checkbook in our Washington branch, and he said, what you have there, it's twice as bad here. Then all of a sudden, five days later, we got a letter in the mail that said, in the matter of the United States of America versus Adam Beck and Barry Beck from the IRS, it said we weren't properly paying our employees, that some of them we said were contract, and it just all hit us at once, and we were finished. The business was over. And everyone says, well, what did you do? You didn't have any money. What did you do? We fought our way back. We floated some checks, borrowed a little bit of money here from our parents. One of our parents put in a $200,000 investment, which they that ultimately they got later on a $9 million return. Oh, that's so awesome. Uh, you know, people believed in us, and we believed in ourselves, and we fought our way through it. But it's for me to tell you about that, it just doesn't mean anything. People say, Barry, you're such a seasoned entrepreneur. I was like, I know, but when you season a piece of meat by beating it with a cleaver and rubbing salt in it, it doesn't feel that great. But what comes out on the other end seems a lot more tender. And so this is the reality of what happened. I've had many, many experiences that. One of the things I always tell young entrepreneurs is remember the most important thing, droom. What was it? Droom. What does that mean? Don't run out of money. <laughs> right. I Don't mean, run out of money because when you run out of money, you know, it's like I tell young kids, it's like Pac-Man. You put those quarters in the machine, you play. But when you have your last quarter, it's game over. And this is the thing. You've got to raise money when you can get it because when you really need it, it's nearly impossible to get. Right. Desperation. So, you know, look, we, it, it's not been a linear path for us, uh, but we fought through it. And it's not natural. It's like giving birth to a business, right? You know, this idea of innovation versus globalization. Anybody can open up a new store and try to do it better than the other guy. But to really create something new, like Facebook, out of nowhere, the Facebook, whatever they created, it's hard. And it's just, you know, there's a book called The Hard Thing about hard things. And it's just, it's very difficult. It's not easy to build a company and do something new. It almost takes a startup. I always sort of reflect on this idea is why didn't Google just make Facebook? Why not? Why didn't Ford or GM just make Tesla? It seems like it would be a silver plate for them. They can't. It's impossible. It's that process, the seasoning, getting beaten with a cleaver, that bootstrapping and this, that drives, and with a small group of entrepreneurs melding together, five or ten people together in a room somewhere, completely away from a big company where these new ideas are spawned, and they're forced to innovate, forced to create something new, and that's what happened. That's what happened with me and my businesses, and that's what happened with all these companies like Facebook and Soft Micro. What was that company called? Microsoft, right? These companies that just come out of nowhere. Why didn't IBM just create Microsoft? They could have done that. They couldn't. They couldn't. It was Bill and Paul off on their own that wrote a software program for Honeywell that ultimately changed the world. And I, I really believe that it's also about riding waves. It's my last thing I'll say on the subject, which is I really fundamentally believe that there's no such thing, no such thing as a great entrepreneur that didn't ride some great wave. You know, Bill and Paul rode this thing called the software wave. Jeff Bezos, he rode the e-commerce wave. You know, Rockefeller rode industrialization. Henry Ford rode the, the combustion engine. And so uh, this, is what, this, this is what it is. I mean, you could be the world's greatest umbrella maker, but I mean, I'm not sure that's going to get you really far.
So this idea of financial security, which you suffered through, right, sounds like several times um, in your career. Do you, is there any PTSD in there for you around that? Because like that, that's sort of like what keeps getting me. So, I mean, my business is not nearly as large as yours, but like the only thing that really bugs me and keeps me up at night and makes me have like a weird twitch in my eye is like when the cash flow goes, gets low, right? And I, you know, do, do, doing everything that I'm supposed to be doing, networking, whatever, I don't have control over when that deal is signed. So the financial insecurity, I feel like I still have this like bit of PTSD and I'm wondering, is it ever gonna go away or is that always gonna be part of my story as an entrepreneur? Well, I would say, you know, one of my, you know, things that I think is, um, I have the luck and maybe it's a good thing about me and a bad thing at the same time is a very short memory. <laughs> I tell my wife, I'm, I'm the greatest husband in the world. I can't remember what happened yesterday. And so for me, I only look forward, right? Right, I only look forward. Although life is interesting in the sense that it's the only thing that you live forward, but it's really under, only understood backwards. But notwithstanding that fact, I, I really look forward. What's the next thing? What's next? What's next? Mm-hmm. And I have a lot of people that love to dwell in the past. Oh my God, you wouldn't believe what this person said to me yesterday. I said, great. What are you going to do about it now? Mm-hmm. What are you going to do about it now? What's next? Because business will throw an inordinate amount of stumbling blocks at you. It's all about getting that stumbling block, tucking it under your arm, moving past it. What's next? And I, I was, I, that was part of my personality. I had so many bullets being fired at me when I was starting my businesses, and I just just kept looking. I mean, I almost got to a point at some points where I, be honest with you, where I just be, became almost just, just ferociously aggressive mm-hmm. in the sense where I was like, bring it on, show me what's next, I'll take it. Right, universe, here I am. I just ready come and get me, what is it next? Who's gonna do this to me? When am I gonna, I'm just ready. <laughs> and I just got to that point where I was just ready for almost anything uh, and ready to fight through it. And I think that, my team members and my investors saw that in me and they believed in, in me. And I think it's a lot about you and your personality. I mean, you know, there's two things that I look at in any business. I look at the two P's. It's the people and the plan. But most importantly, it's the people. I mean, there was a guy named Howard who started a coffee company. It was the dumbest idea in the world. He was going to sell coffee for $5 a cup. Well, what a terrible idea. The average price of a cup of coffee in America was 50 cents. That was his plan, but it was all about the people. And the people made that plan work. Starbucks. So. Okay, so let's talk about um, meeting Marla, Marla. Your, your, your co-founder at Blue Mercury. Um, how did that happen? So, yes, we were very successful. Tower Systems, U.S. Maintenance became very successful. I was living in Washington, D.C. at the time. Uh, you know, I was national footprint business, which is what I always wanted. For me, I'm always thinking national footprint. So we got to that place. Nas- I'd like to remind our listeners, this is not in the beauty industry. This, this is, is my first company, right. my first company, my first sort of big company out of college. And uh, the business was very successful. I don't know if I want to sort of describe financially what it was, but I was very successful. I like to call that rolling in it. Yeah, yeah. I was rolling in a sports car. I mean, I had a whole life. You know, I was very successful. Uh, but I wasn't completely satisfied. I wasn't completely satisfied. Uh, 
we were solving problems. Basically, we were an outsourced maintenance business. We became the Kleenex tissue of that industry. Basically, we had customers like Starbucks, and we said, geez, what do you do for a living? We make coffee. Okay, great. But what about your facility, your landscaping, electric, construction? You're locked out of a store in Alaska. They had no way to deal with that. It was terrible for them. And we brought order to chaos. You called a 1-800 number, and I was a one-stop shop for all their problems nationwide. I, we, you know, we invented that. Um, and we're financially remunerated for that. The problem is every morning I came in, I was dealing with Starbucks, Bed Bath, all their problems nationwide that didn't relate to their core business. And we were paid for that, but it was really frustrating. I called my older brother in Philadelphia. I was living in Washington. I was running the Washington branch. And uh, yeah, I said, I'm so dissatisfied. I hate this business. My God. He says, no, no, no. No, no, no. You're making a lot of money. What I want you to do tonight is put your bank account statement under your pillow. <laughs> And, and through osmosis, you'll become happy. You know, wafting, wafting all the money in my bank. I become, but um, I tried that, some version of that, and, and, and for a little while. But ultimately, I wasn't. I, I just still wasn't happy. I said, let's sell the company. There was a, a, a at that time there was a billion dollar company in Washington D.C. or on its way there to be a billion dollar company who was buying up, doing a roll up in all the companies in my industry. They were not profitable at the time, but they were rolling up other companies, and we were very profitable. Why? Well, because we were bootstrapping entrepreneurs that we had to be. Mm -hmm. And uh, they had just bought a friend of mine's company uh, for $18 million. This was like this next number I'd never heard before. I was like, wow, that's so much money. Obviously, not a huge amount of money, maybe compared to the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world today, but this was a big number and a number I'd never heard before. So I went to a meeting mostly to meet with this guy, uh, and I walked into this investment banking presentation in Washington, D.C., and I talked to them for a while. It was like 10 people in the room. I think their perception of me was crazy entrepreneur. I think I might have parked my sports car sideways (laughs) across, you know, three lanes uh, of parking stripes uh, and came up into the meeting and... um, you know, we were very different than then. They were this big company, and we were young entrepreneurs. I was still in my 20s, late 20s. Um, and normally in these type of presentations, everyone introduces themselves up front, but I knew this guy, so we started, had the whole meeting. At the end of the meeting, there was a gal in the room uh, who I didn't even notice or look at. At the end, she says, you know, hi. Uh, you know, we went around the room. I'm Marla, Marla, and I, uh, you know, am the vice president of acquisitions. I make all the decisions about which companies we buy. I went to HBS. I didn't even know what that was, Harvard Business School. I didn't even, you know, I never even considered that. You know, I went to the school of starting companies. So, obviously, I, went, I graduated from Cornell University, but then I went right into business. Um, and I was blown away. I mean, it was just a lightning bolt. Well, first of all, and this may sound a little bit small-minded, but you know, I grew up in Philadelphia, and you know, everybody. This is a real gross generalization. Everybody had dark hair, and everybody had a Philadelphia accent. And you know, this was a girl that went to Harvard, that came from San, the San Francisco Bay Area, and she was beautiful and intelligent and quiet and demure and strategic. I just had never seen a creature like this before. And I think for her part, she just had never, you know, she grew up in a world where people were like management consultants that worked at McKinsey and, you know, wore blue suits and this was, you know, they were more robotic than me. And I just, you know, maybe I was alive or maybe too alive. You know, this was just, we just saw each other. We were polar opposites. 
polar opposites, but there was obviously an attraction, not a physical attraction at the time, it was just a, just a lightning bolt of wow, but the truth is what happened after this investment banking presentation, I went back to our board of directors in Philadelphia, we actually met on uh, in, in our beach community. Uh, we all met, and they said, so what happened? Are we selling our company? I said, I don't know, but I met this girl, and I think I'm going to marry her. <laughs> and uh, I think one of the members on the board looked at me and said, what kind of guy goes to an investment banking presentation? This is like the highest level investment banking. Pre I mean, Washington at that point was still a it's not what it is. It was a one-horse town. I mean, it was a teeny, teeny little town. Uh, we probably all should have bought real estate back then. It was a teeny, teeny little town. I mean, this was the highest-level investment banking presentation going on. Uh, I mean, what kind of guy goes to a meeting, an investment banking presentation at this level and meets a girl? He said, I don't know, but I did. And I, I really liked her. I was fascinated by her. And the truth is, in my mind, I went into sort of almost like dating mode. I waited three days. I called her. And, you know, she called me back. And we started to bat around business ideas together. And the truth of what happened was I started to feed her. I looked at her big public company. We ultimately never sold the business to them. Our company, which became U.S. Maintenance, became the one of the most successful companies in the industry. Fast forward 10 more years, we sold the business to a public company, MCOR, and is now part of that uh, Fortune 500 company. Um, but I started, you know, we started to meet together, bat around ideas together. And I kept feeding her information because her public company wasn't performing. I said, look, you should, you know, here's a program you could run to sell insurance to your contract. Here's a program, you know, all these different programs that we were running that they just had no idea what they were doing. We were running because we had to, and we were really profitable, which probably wasn't appropriate because I was feeding a competitor information. But it was really anything for me to get to the next meeting to see her. I really, like, you know, it's embarrassing. I wanted to see her. Um, but as time wore on, we, we start to bat ideas around together. And the internet sort of was really starting to come about. It was around 1999, 98, 99, 2000 time. And, you know, we... we, we we started Blue Mercury, and that's what it is. We ended up starting a company together. We were not even dating at the time. Uh, and we started a company together, and we started Blue Mercury together. So how did you, um, in your brainstorming, land on beauty, coming from some, you know, an industry that's completely different for both of you? What about it, about beauty for you, was alluring? I, I would say really two things. I would say, number one, um, I've always been fascinated uh, with design and style. And, um, you know, I think that if I were not at Blue Mercury today, I'd probably be in the fashion and beauty business anyway, or I'd probably be an agent in the move in, in the in, in the in the movie industry. Sometimes I wake up and feel like I've missed my calling. Everyone tells me I could be Ari Gold, so I don't know uh, from the from the TV show Entourage. Um, but really, I think the truth is that I looked at the industry and I saw it was ripe for disruption. That's the truth. So you it know? wasn't about like an obsession around beauty. It's like you see the white space, you saw the opportunity. Well, it was really Marla and I together. Marla was an important part. Marla was a very sophisticated beauty shopper at the time. 
This is very early. But, you know, she lived in Boston. When she went to Harvard, she used to drive all the way to Chestnut Hill uh, in Boston to go get her MAC lipstick. She was getting facials before they were cool, you know. But she, but we but, but but between her and my mom we and my sister, you know, we all understood that people weren't totally satisfied with their beauty buying journey, right? The department stores sold products by brand from behind glass counters, uh, and the and the, sometimes the staff could be snobby or off-putting. And then on the other hand, the only, the only other option was the drugstores, mm-hmm. and they sold more moderate brands, and there was no sampling. And really, the department stores and the drugstores left it wide open for us. Mm-hmm. We saw the need, and we rushed in, and that's what happened. That's awesome. So um, for. Um, our last question, I just wanted to mention that um, on our conversation, you told me that you and Marla go out for a walk every night. Right? This is your ritual. And I told my husband this. I said, yeah, they go out for a walk every night at 10 p.m. Isn't that nice? And he said to me, 10 p.m.? I'm like almost asleep at 10 p.m. So it makes me wonder, like, do you have boundless energy as a couple? Like, you know, is, is it just like constant energy or is there ever like an exhaustion in running this huge business, working together? I'll tell you, it's funny. One of my close friends who lives here in New York City, of course, where the listeners now know we're doing the podcast, he, he said to me, what's the matter with you guys? You have to walk every night and talk to each other? And I said, I said to my friend, I said, um, you know, the Queen of England once said, there's no problem that can't be solved on a great walk. On a, you know, on a nice walk. And so, and then his wife overheard him and said, yeah, yeah, how come we don't go for walks? So, the, you know, the, she said, well, maybe we should do that. This is something that we started a, a long time ago when we started the company. We, were, we would go on these walks. We lived in Georgetown. We would walk down to the monuments. And this is how we'd sort of blow off steam and at the same time sort of puzzle out the business. And we sort of always saw metaphors as we walked around. You know, we walked, were walking once in San Francisco, and we thought about, you know, the Gap family and how they struggle with their partnership with Levi's and then launched their own brands the same way that we launched M61 and Loon and Aster. You know, we, we started to think about right before the Great Recession, how we saw these buildings being built, and we thought to ourselves, wow, what happens if these buildings don't get finished? Maybe the recession comes. We, so we really, there's a lot going on in these walks, and, but really it's a way to keep the intimacy alive in our relationship and um, working together with your spouse doesn't work for a lot of people but for us I couldn't imagine it any other way I wouldn't understand in other words so I come home from my job and she comes home from her job and we don't have a job in common I just that would for me would seem strange Um, and you know we walk every night between, you know, it's not always 10 p.m., 8 p.m., 10 p.m., and we walk, you know, between two and four miles every night. In fact, we've calculated that we've walked halfway around the world together, more than halfway around the world together, and so one of the things that we like to do is finish that circumference together uh, around the world. And, um, you know, do I have boundless energy? Um, I think I have enough interesting business ideas for five lifetimes, and so I really... I think that my father once said, you know, Barry only has uh, two switches. I'm either really on or I'm off. And so that's when I'm on, I'm thinking, I'm running a company, I'm thinking about starting my next company or my next idea, and then, or I'm going to go collapse tonight in my hotel room and zonk out until I flip back on again, and then I'm on. Well, thank you for that story and being revealing, and my husband and I are definitely going to adopt this walk. Maybe it's not every night, but... um, you know, it does appeal to me. I think it's it's a nice tradition. Thank and you. Good luck in finishing that circumference. 
Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you for sharing your wisdom with our listeners. And for our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this interview with Barry. Please subscribe to our series on iTunes. And for updates about the show, follow us on Instagram at Where Brains Meet Beauty Podcast. Thanks for listening to Where Brains Meet Beauty with Jody Katz. Tune in again for more authentic conversations with beauty leaders.